All right. Uh, welcome everyone to episode 16 of the Citizen's Guide. On today's show, Connor and I are going to discuss the president's latest challenges to the legitimacy of the election, issues with the ongoing transition to a Biden-Harris administration, why Facebook has become a dangerous force in our politics, the upcoming runoff elections for Georgia's two U.S. Senate seats, potential legal challenges that Donald Trump could face after he leaves office, uh, ongoing conflict in Ethiopia, and recent concerns about Russia's military activity in the Northern Pacific. So we've got a busy show today, Connor. Uh, first things first, we're going to talk about um, Donald Trump's ongoing challenges to the election. Um, so as of now, he and his campaign have filed lawsuits in five states alleging widespread election fraud and questioning the legitimacy of the election. Uh, nearly every one of these challenges has been tossed out of court and not a single vote has been disqualified as a result of the president's legal action. Um, these allegations often include dead people voting. Um, these so-called dead people end up being very much alive and very much angry that the Trump campaign thinks they're dead. Um, also, the Trump campaign tried to claim in one court that they were not allowed in the room to oversee vote counting, which was not true. The campaign was forced to admit in court that there was, you know, quote, a, a non-zero uh, number of campaign officials in the room. So that's, you know, non-zero is, is what the law allows for. Um, and then, of course, you have conservative media continuing to cling to the idea that Donald Trump um, could still somehow win, but it's very clear Joe Biden has reached 306 electoral votes, uh, well above the 270 threshold um, needed to become president, and it's also the same number of electoral votes that Donald Trump captured in 2016, um, but with a different constellation of states. So, Connor, what what do you think about these uh, these legal battles that the president is fighting right now? Um, frivolous. <laughs> um insane um seeking to placate egos that that don't need to be placated anymore i don't know if you mentioned it i but um he's one for 20 in <laughs> lawsuits ruled in his favor from which is which is like good i guess like no no single one lawsuit is going to overturn the tens of thousands of votes that separate joe biden's lead in some of these states or the million, like almost five million voter gap in the popular vote. Um, but just what I worry about and my thoughts are like, just because like Donald Trump has air quotes, a legal right to file these, these lawsuits and, and decry baseless claims of fraud. I, I just don't think that it's healthy for our democracy to put it through these stress tests, tests because what we, what we're seeing is like our institutions are working. Like Donald Trump is not going to be president, no matter how much people are saying otherwise. But just because like our institutions can stand up to these things, it's not it's not a situation where you want to push it to see how far it goes. Like that's what I'm worried about, and that's and I know there's people in the Trump administration who are smarter than this. Like they just have to be and realize the danger they're doing, but somehow they keep doing it. Yeah, I, I see your point about um, kind of stressing the institutions because what I see kind of developing is this, and it's existed for a long time, this parallel 
idea of on one side you have people who believe in facts and can trust, you know, the New York Times or whatever, you know, the paper of record, and then this other current within American society that is is extremely unwilling to believe in facts, believe in science, believe in the legitimacy of an election. And that's the segment I worry about because, and this can get into some international relations theory, but constructivist thought would tell us that if enough people wake up tomorrow and say Joe Biden isn't president, then he's not president. And that's, that's really scary because there's only power in our institutions insofar as people believe there's power in them. There's no, there's no other force acting on people to make them follow, um, follow the laws that we have to continue participating in the social contract that we have with our government. Um, and that's really scary because you're really starting to see that fray in a way that it really hasn't in a long time. Um, but, but what you're seeing, the further you separate yourself from, like, the Trump orbit, like, the Republicans further down the ladder, you see state legislators in these states saying they're not going to appoint faithless electors to the Electoral College. They won't validate those claims. So I think that that, that, that is an issue that constructivists, <laughs> that, that theory is is worrisome in the long run. But as of now, I think the further you separate yourself from the Trump orbit for, with people in those positions that, that they realize that Donald Trump lost. Absolutely. So I, I'm not, I'm not too worried about that now, but that, that is a troubling thought. No, it's, it's a long-term issue for sure. It's not, it's not this time it's going to be a problem, but 10 years from now it could be. Well then and, 10 years from now you have them run for Congress. like a Exactly. Green. No, that's, that's my point. You have right now, you know, the so-called elites of the party, the, the, you know, the legislators and, and all that. And eventually those people are going to get primaried out by people who actually believe that the election was illegitimate. And that's where I see the problem down the road, yeah. I guess. Your Ted um, Cruz's, your Tom Cotton's, those, the elites. Yeah. The yeah. Thinkers. I mean, yeah. Those, those moderate Republicans. Um, but so all of this has kind of been the result of, in my opinion, um, the president's campaign, um, not only for president, but against mail-in voting. Um, and then also kind of we spoke about how um, the media generally on election night maybe could have done a better job of preparing people for kind of the red mirage that existed, um, not only in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, but also Arizona to some extent in that the media was so frightened of calling the race too early or looking like they were favoring Joe Biden, that they almost waited too long. They, they didn't prepare listeners and viewers um, that there were a ton of mail-in ballots. And because Democrats had done the groundwork, these mail-in ballots were going to be really favorable to Democratic candidates. Do you have any thoughts about that? I, I think I can speak for both of us. I think both of us um, were aware of the existence of a red mirage. We both saw the Dave Wasserman tweets. Um, but even then that didn't prepare us for just the anxiety on Tuesday through Saturday. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but, no, absolutely. So again, I don't think there's anything I would say even as tuned in as we were that I don't think anything could have overcome that anxiety, but I do think like the cable news was sort of, especially after election day, they were sort of playing it as a horse race with these mail-in ballots when the evidence showed they were vastly, in favor for the Democrats, but um, they just kept up to this narrative of maybe Donald Trump 
wins them by 90% when he's been losing them by 20% so far, which right. like, isn't going to happen. And, and, and they know that, but um, I just think the situation was so new, so new, so unique this year with the split between Democrats voting by mail or early voting. And then you had um, Republicans doing crazy in-person election day turnout. So I don't know how I would have covered it, but some preface, but also realizing that maybe it's time we retire the notion that we might know who the winner is on election night and just sort of maybe don't count, don't, don't tabulate our races according to like a news or TV schedule. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a lot of countries run their elections in that way because of mail-in voting and things like that. And I understand the media's hesitancy in, you know, saying, okay, Joe Biden's going to win Pennsylvania, but Donald Trump's up by, you know, 700,000 votes because to, to, uh, to an average listener, that looks, that looks fishy. Um, So I understand that. And there's not really a perfect solution, I guess. But also we wouldn't have the situation if Republican legislators in those States were tabulated their mail-in votes ahead of time and then just released them on election day. So exactly, exactly, because <laughs> a lot, a ton of states count their votes um, as they come in. The mail-in votes count them as they come in, oh. um, and and yeah, and then you know on election night because yeah, the state legislators have empowered local election commissions to count those votes as they come in, uh, not publishing the results earlier or anything. Uh, but yeah, no, that's a good point. I I think. Republicans really handicapped themselves all around on mail-in voting this year, and it showed. So, <laughs> sorry about it. Better, better luck in four years, I guess. Um, okay, Connor. So this has kind of resulted um, in what what is now known as the Million MAGA March that took place yesterday in D.C. Um, so this is a little piece from the Washington Post. It says, quote, President Trump supporters had celebrated for hours on Saturday, waving their MAGA flags and blaring God bless the USA as they gathered in Washington to falsely claim that the election had been stolen from the man they adore. The crowd had even reveled in a personal visit from Trump who passed by in his motorcade, smiling and waving. But that was before the people who opposed their hero showed up and the mood shifted, growing angrier as 300 or so counter protesters delivered a message the president's most ardent backers were unwilling to hear. The election is over. Trump lost. Um, So, Connor, there were not millions of people there. There were thousands, um, largely populated by Trump supporters, um, but also far right organizations, neo-Nazis. But also, sometimes it's hard to tell who's who in that kind of crowd, you know? The line's blurred. The line was very blurry, I'm afraid. Um, Proud Boys were there. Just a whole mess of a, mess of an event. Um, what do you, what, what, what do you think about this? It seems dangerous. It seems dangerous because there's no one on, no one, no one on the Republican side is actively calling for these groups to just like become less aggressive, demilitarize, or, and no one's on the right, is denouncing their anti-Semitic, anti-democratic, um, fascist leanings of just, there's, there's no one, there's no, there's no moral leader on the right to, to say these groups do not represent us because they, like you said earlier, that they're scared of getting primaried out by one of them. And in fact, you have, <laughs> 
um, Representative-elect Marjorie Green of Georgia speaking to these people, addressing the crowd, along with the, um, along with Alex Jones, who yes. is a conspiracy theorist who who tormented families of the Sandy Hook, mass of the Sandy Hook um, school massacre. So like, like there's yeah no it's like these are bonkers there. people like these are bonkers people who are not like like practicing good faith politics with these people because these yeah it's it's dangerous i and this like i am very much in favor of people protesting and like exercising those rights but to do it on the basis of such like counterfactual like thought i guess is just so dangerous and and here's like another snippet from the article it said when a small group holding and a small group of counter protesters holding bright orange signs that said refuse fascism um the trump fans started shouting usa usa i i mean it's just it's it's becoming very clear that a segment of this group of people i don't know if it's small large in the middle whatever see see a sign that says refuse fascism as an enemy i like it just couldn't have been more clear than that than that image um there i think someone uh from an npr article about it they talked to a man named david north who with his wife julie drove from all night eastern tennessee to attend and he said look around is this fringe and you know uh a pretty good insight from a man who he has a point with... 70 70 some odd million people voted for donald trump to be president for four more years is it fringe no it's especially not. when they feel like they are so empowered to 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 hold these sort of events and just espouse these <laughs> these just bonkers Nons- yeah nonsense I don't, I don't know how to verbalize just how how conspiratorial these people are and how like i guess fringe but not really because yeah yeah well and and it should be made clear that these aren't like your this isn't like republicans marching in favor of like a tax cut or like for like a pro-life organization or like a pro like religious freedom yeah, right. Yeah, privatization of social security. Like these are people marching because they think that Donald Trump is the right is like going to be president for four more years, and that the Democrats somehow stole the election. But also, like with um, Representative Elect Marjorie Taylor Greene, she is like a QAnon conspiracist, and QAnon alleges that famous Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton belong to a cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles, like. for those listening that's not normal in american politics that's not normal in any politics in any liberal democracy in the world that's just not normal um and and we're gonna talk about later but but we have some we have some entities to blame in our system of governance and in our our uh collective marketplace of ideas um i just think go go ahead just i think it's funny because i was also looking at articles of and commentators trying to both sides this saying like marjorie taylor green and 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 these these representatives who like stand up for these people are like wow this is sort of like what we saw with 
with Democrats supporting Black Lives Matter when in fact oh. you didn't have or like the riots or or the the demonstrations during the summer. And the thing is, like, I don't see how those are equivocal. Like, well, they're not. They're, they're not. not. <laughs> I mean, they're not. It's a bad faith argument of of people trying to just put this into some sort of like context they can understand. But when you have people who and Democrat most Democrats try to distance themselves from this that that aggression of of the protesters later in the cycle. But even then, um, you still had the right wing and people trying to pin that violence on Democrats. And again, this is a topic for another time about how much that might have impacted those movements might have impacted Democrats' electoral success in some states, but that's not the point. The point I'm trying to make is that you have Republicans actively engaging with these people and standing up and saying, I support these these fascist and conspiratorial people. And you there won't be any any media backlash. You won't see Mitch McConnell no. saying Marjorie Taylor Greene does not represent the right. the Republican idea. You don't you don't see Donald Trump doing it. You won't see Mitt Romney. You won't see because for some reason, <laughs> there's just some sort of imbalance, and I think everyone should be aware of that. Well, I mean, the dirty little secret is the, that this group does represent the Republican ideal. Right. The goals are the same. It's just right. the tactics are changing. The goals are the same. The goals are to suppress voting, to try to keep the majority of this country from having um, its political uh, ideals realized. Um, yeah, that's that's the that's the secret to it all. Um, okay, so the third little leg of this whole election kind of aftermath is issues with the transition that should be taking place, um, and it's not. So uh, the the Trump administration is stonewalling um, the Biden team kind of at every step, and the kind of the key player in this is Emily Murphy who is the Trump appointed administrator of the General Services Administration. And she has refused to like sign the documents that can like begin the transition, which would release like funding and office space and like, um, like background checks and stuff for the Biden team to start like thinking about staffing the federal government. And this is a big deal because like right now, Biden's team should be like, going to the various federal agencies and learning how to do their jobs. It's not that the, the Trump team has to leave. It's that they'll like, be like two, like they'll share a desk or something and they'll learn, they'll learn where things are and how the, how the administration is supposed to work. Or like also, because I'm, I'm assuming unlike the Trump administration, these staffing people who probably know how to run these organizations, but it's more of seeing from what I understood it's more of seeing like, what the problems are in the world like where yeah. where what is the u.s government's position right now on these things and like where where are resources allocated what what are the challenges we're facing abroad yeah yeah and then this also goes into um uh president-elect biden should be receiving um daily intelligence briefings and things like that and he's not um, which is just very dangerous and the last time there was a delay it was um 2000 and so that was because of a disputed election, um, like an actually disputed election. Um, but then, um, of course, 9-11 happened early in President Bush's term. And when the 9-11 Commission report came out, it directly pointed to the delay in transition um, from Clinton to Bush uh, 
because Bush wasn't able, he didn't have a full national security team in place until like six months into his term. And so that kind of delayed the country's ability to be prepared for, for the attack. And then um, in the 2008, 2009 transition, um, the out, because the transition worked so well between Bush and then to Obama, they were able to respond to a terror threat that was placed on inauguration day. Like the team was so um, cooperative that, that on the day of transfer, you know, noon on that day, it changes who's in charge. They were able to respond to a terror threat. Um, so it, it really is life or death um, and just so, so important. And then we're living in a pandemic. Um, Dr. Fauci, I know has said, he compared it to a, um, um, to a race and you, you know, you need to hand off the baton as quickly as possible. Um, and that's just not happening. So there's going to be a, just huge ramifications for this. Um, what, what do you think about all this? I look forward to the day where I, I, I don't know who is in charge of the general services administration. I, cause it'll just work. And I look forward to just the bureaucracy just working in its minutia and I think it's silly that someone is a, a political appointee is in charge of signing off on a transition. Yeah, too. I agree. I think that needs to be fixed. Um, but no, it's scary for a lot of reasons, like you mentioned. And the the two two international pieces of news we're covering would would point to why why the president elect should have access yeah. to the daily briefings and intelligence reports, and why staff should be sitting in on these meetings to understand like what's happening and how they need to take control because on noon of January 21st, like yeah. <laughs> it's, they're gone and like, yeah. they'll just leave. And just, I'm ready for everything to work. After again. burning all of their documents, of course. Bur burning and shredding. Yeah, mm -hmm. burning and shredding. Yeah, the, I've, yeah the, shredders, the shredders in DC are, are working hard um, for these next 60 or so days, I'm afraid. <laughs> Gee. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So the the transition that's just bad. We'll keep updating on that because that's that'll keep being a story until Miss um, Murphy decides to sign off. But then you also have issues. You have like Mike Pompeo, who's the Secretary of State, um, joking or kind of joking, kind of not about preparing for a transition to a second Trump administration, and he sa says it from the same. Um, lectern as he admonishes foreign governments for not transitioning power peacefully and just an ill-timed joke from a from a ill-prepared man for the job it he's he's just a ridiculous individual um i would just prefer that that you know secretaries of state and secretaries of the cabinet just not have a sense of humor perhaps and just yeah they don't have to be funny job. no they don't, don't have to be funny need to be funny <laughs> secretary pompeo no one's asking yeah. for a stand-up hour at the yeah. pentagon yeah no yeah the, i would i contend that the only funny people need to be the second spouses i need joe biden to have a sense of humor and i need kamala's husband doug to be funny those are the only two people i need to be funny in the entire government and yeah, that's it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do look forward to Mike Pompeo's run for president in 2024. So look out for that. I'm yeah, looking forward to that a lot because I like to see him lose. Don Jr., Mike Pompeo primary. And Tiffany and Ivanka and the rest of the Trump spawn. Um, okay, Connor. So now we're going to talk about Facebook. Um, 
this ties into kind of the right-wing media apparatus that allows Trump to continue claiming that the election was fraudulent. What do you want to tell us about Facebook today, Connor? I know there's a lot of threads, but... Just there's a lot to unpack with Facebook and just the sort of right-wing media apparatus that has grown even more evasive and powerful since Trump took office and he empowered it to do so. And I think the more... The further we get from the election, the more we will be revealed about just how far-reaching and how how pervasive it is in, in the ecosystem. But I really just wanted to focus on how, how, how the Facebook algorithm and the social media algorithms are feeding people just disinformation and lies and, and, and deliberately partisan content that people are interpreting as news. So on Twitter, there's this Facebook's top 10 page and it posts the 10 most interacted, interacted with pages of the day. And I don't even know how far to scroll back, but months and always on the top 10, it's Fox News, a man named Dan Bongino, Franklin Graham, Donald J. Trump, and then just an assortment of like Newsmax and OAN and, and just these far right, if those names, sorry, if the audience, if those names don't sound familiar, it's because they shouldn't be. Those are like fringe, again, conspiratorial um, media outlets and, and personalities, but Facebook is, has designed their algorithm in such a way that it prioritizes moving this content to people. And that's, that's how, what shapes their political views, um, which is just so dangerous because again, these people are conspiratorial. These people peddle in false truths and lies and, and dangerous, dangerous thoughts. Um, do you want to pick up on any of that? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the reason the reason Facebook benefits by doing this is because clicks generate ad money. And that's how mm-hmm. Facebook pays, pays the bills. Um, and the problem is, I think for me, and I'm a, I'm a Facebook user, I'm trying to like roll back a little bit because there's nothing to be found there. But Facebook claims to be an organization committed to cultivating community among people. And that's just not what's happening. What's happening is that people's relatives, especially older people, are being sucked into this right-wing media environment and they're getting stuck there. And they're gonna be stuck there for the rest of their lives because they, they are reading these fake news articles about how, you know, Joe Biden is like Hunter, Hunter Biden's Ill. Hunter Biden's laptop. That was yeah a, the Hunter Biden laptop scandal. That was a conspiracy scandal, that, I guess not even that rose to to prominence through these these back channels through these just yeah and it's swamps. it's what develops this idea that Donald Trump is somehow this fighter for the middle class and there's this battle between good and evil in our politics and it just it radicalizes people and Facebook needs to be held accountable for what they do. Um, especially in terms of regulating um, false falsity, falsehoods um, in its content. And then also, yeah, it just, it needs to be regulated. And this isn't like a, a rant against free speech. It's a rant in favor of, of proper speech and truth. And, and maybe Facebook being encouraged to return to its idea of developing community, because instead of seeing, you know, pictures of their grandchildren, grandmothers are being shown, yeah, these right-wing articles um, telling them that Democrats are evil. 
Um, so it just it's it's bad. It's bad, and it and it feeds into this ecosystem of these organizations like OAN and Newsmax, mm-hmm. which are even further right than Fox, mm-hmm. and and it's just this whole web of disinformation and sometimes foreign interference, like um, Russian the Russian um, intelligence apparatus has, has fed stories to OAN and they use talking points from the, the RT, which is the Russian news media. They, they use these sources and fabricate these lies that come from Russian, Russian intelligence. So it's, it's a frightening problem. And Facebook is just such a behemoth and <clears throat> frankly, un, some might say unprecedented and it's, <laughs> reach and just algorithmic feed feeder system i guess i, yeah. I yeah. to unpack this would be a whole another episode on its own it's challenging because it's 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 <clears throat> layers it it started the day that facebook was created and it's continued um it's continuing as we speak yeah but it's i guess this will also be another conversation that i think we should have about what the Democratic Party is supposed to do when they're running against candidates in a party that embraces these falsehoods. Because a a story for another time of the dueling op-eds between Connor Lamb and Alexandria (laughs) Ocasio-Cortez. But I would, to take out of that would be that instead of focusing on those ideological differences, you have to focus on that they're both running against people who, who not only consume this media, but believe it and then help it spread. And it's this frightening problem for a democracy that depends on voters being informed and being a rational, a rational voter. Yeah, yeah, a little preview of next week where we talk about why, uh, why Democrats are um, so upset and sad about the idea that they could enter um, the Biden administration with control of Congress and the White House. Um, we, we really seem upset for a party that just won the presidency um, against an incumbent and held on to the House of Representatives and very well um, could, could take control of the United States Senate after the Georgia uh, runoff mm-hmm. elections. So a little preview of next week for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, yeah, Facebook, yeah, it's just, like you said, Connor, it's so hard to conceptualize these issues because they're so pervasive. Um, and it's, it's some it's hard because there's you know obviously we have free speech but at what point does facebook have to step in and start editorializing and and you know trying to prioritize what's good what's bad and then this also bleeds into how you know facebook control of instagram works how twitter feeds into the whole thing and then how how youtube especially um has an algorithm that radicalizes people yeah just something to be conscious of i think for listeners of how your social media intake shapes your political views in so much as reading things that aren't from trusted sources and deciding for yourself what a Which shouldn't be a political is. statement. A trusted source right. should be most likely a national news, like journalistic yeah, institute, like, like a newspaper. The New, York, the New York Times is not out to get you. <laughs> like no. they're just they're ju- they a very centrist news organization that reports on the facts and works hard every day to report on the facts. And correct if they may get it wrong. They issue corrections, which is even more uh, important. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Connor, if you're if you're ready, let's yeah. talk about Georgia for a second. Um, so on January fifth, Georgia voters will go to the polls again to decide uh, which party will control the United States Senate. Um, this is a result of Georgia law requiring Senate candidates to reach uh, greater than fifty percent of the total vote in order to win. Um, neither incumbent Georgia Senator uh, David Perdue nor Kelly Loeffler reached that 50% threshold. Um, David Perdue is the, is a, his term is up anyway. He's done six years and now it's time to, to decide if he should do another six. Kelly Loeffler was appointed to a seat. So this is um, to decide the remainder of the unexpired term. And so da uh, Senator Perdue's challenger is John Ossoff and Kelly Loeffler's is Raphael Warnock. Um, what do you what do you think, Connor? What's going to happen? I don't. Um, we don't have any polls, sadly. I would no love to look at a poll and and view that as predictive of the future. But uh, I learned my lesson, and I just haven't seen any polls. I think all the pollsters are very scared. They're out of a job. I, they're they're in hiding right now, actually. <laughs> um, I'm glad that it went into a runoff because thank goodness. Otherwise, it wouldn't really matter that much. It'd just be how how large is the Republican majority going to be? Um, but as I think is the case in all of these Senate races this year, the, the, the Republican candidates are just uniquely inept at their job. Um, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue were both briefed on the coronavirus pandemic in February and then sold off massive amounts of stock before the general public knew. So like, that's a crime, I think. I think that's like insider trading. It, uh, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Evil. So um. just not, I wouldn't say a public servant in any terms. <laughs> no, um, and, and Kelly Loeffler's husband like owns the New York Stock Exchange or his company does, which don't ask me what that even means. I don't know what that means. Um, it just means they have more money than they should and should pay more in taxes. Um, but yeah, but, go ahead. <laughs> and then the Democratic candidates are, are, are also just, are not sorry are uniquely adept to 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 run against these people i yeah. think they both offer very different versions of what a georgia senate a georgia georgia senator could look like with john ossoff and um raphael warnock who mm. was pastor of of the church mlk was at, in, at the ebenezer baptist church yeah. um so just Georgia has a lot of momentum and a lot of possibility to make this a historic election to elect both of these men um, and get rid of some of probably the worst senators in the, in the, in the Senate right now. Among the, among the slate of characters that yeah, we... Yeah, plenty to choose from. Take your pick. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to predict what's going to happen because nobody knows and it's going to take a ton of work um, from a lot of different people um, to make this happen for Democrats, but Previous special elections in Georgia um, have favored Republicans because of a drop-off in Black turnout after the general election. I'm not sure that's going to be the case this year. Um, and it also should be pointed out that this runoff law um, was was built to disenfranchise Black voters. Um, it just, there's no, there. I don't think there's another state in the country that forces these runoffs like this. Um, and so Republicans only need one of these races to win the Senate. I'm of the mind that it's unlikely that people will split their Senate ticket. I don't know if that'll turn out to be right. 
that unless you have would, a lot of lot of political science people out there who prefer a divided government. Yeah, but also like hate Kelly Loeffler or something. I want to say Raphael Warnock's going to do better than John Ossoff, but I don't know like why. I think Kelly Loeffler is probably uniquely unpopular, if mm-hmm. I had to guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Biden carried Georgia, so that's that's good. Um, by, by a healthy margin for a Georgia's like yeah, yeah healthy in terms of being more than more than a handful of votes more than 537 votes yeah yeah i'd prefer it be bigger but but yeah um but yeah so i'm i'm excited to watch this georgia senate um runoff happen connor i know you and i are going to do some phone banking we will give that information when it's ready stacy abrams um is doing a lot of work also didn't talk about this episode connor a lot of whispers about Stacey Abrams um, running for governor in 2022. Um, yeah. I couldn't be more excited about that. Um, yeah. I think I think she deserves a rematch, um, but that's that's for a different time. Um, but yeah, so hopefully this runoff goes well. If if Democrats win, we'd we the Senate would be 50-50 um, with Vice President uh, Kamala Harris uh, making the majority tie. Um, Another topic, Connor. Somebody's got to fill Senator Harris's Senate seat. Um, I haven't even seen any any whispers about who that's going to be. I guess Governor Newsom over in California will will keep us in suspense for a while. I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of exciting candidates for that. Yeah. So yeah, well, lots of content coming up. Um, okay, Connor. Donald Trump is is going to be not president very soon. He's going to be former President Trump, and that means he's no longer um shielded from some 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 legal action uh what what does that mean for him and how soon can i think about him wearing uh, a striped jumpsuit so as we've i think we've discussed in past episodes donald trump has faced uh a flurry i guess of lawsuits and litigation about his criminal history and his shielding of tax returns and just a host of legal problems that have been insulated from the powers of the presidency while he was in office. But like you said, he won't be president come January and he'll have to face um, the DA of Manhattan, the lower district of New York. No, the district, what is it? It's the attorney general of New York and then Mm -hmm. the DA of Manhattan who are all seeking to uncover these 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 um blocks from trump trying to find out his tax returns that he's issued while he was in office um and then among another just host of litigation his his allegations of sexual assault his various other crimes or again like allegations of crime all of these things will come down to bear on him again another that's probably talked about his like four hundred million dollars in debt that is owed yeah. to someone. Yeah. So, um, like things don't look good, and I think if he was maybe just a hair smarter, he'd invest less money on these lawsuits for recounts and maybe save money and grift more money from his followers to to pay down these vastly more expensive legal fees he faces yeah. in less less than two months. He he's probably about to have to pay so much money in back taxes. It's crazy. And then also, my guess is that sometime between now and January 21st, he's going to try to preemptively pardon himself for some of this. That's just a guess. 
-hmm. and he'll do it via tweet. But the presidential pardon um, doesn't extend to state crimes. So yeah. he just like, there's nothing he can do. Um, and I don't mean to sound so joyous about this. That's probably well, not, not ideal. Um, but there's really nothing he can it's do. It's law and order, Pierce. It's law and order, yeah. Um, so, so be it if the attorney general of the state of New York finds um, some And like he, he, like, there's no doubt in my mind Donald Trump has committed some sort of crime. And like, yeah, <laughs> it, w- it wouldn't have been revealed if he didn't run for president or it wouldn't have been mm. such a big. But he needed to run for president so that he could make more money. Mm-hmm. So to pay off his, his debt. And it, <laughs> it just, it's bad. It's bad, Connor. Yeah. So that's, that's all on that. Just yeah. <laughs> keep, keep, keep your eyes open for what his announcements from the, from the Southern mm-hmm. District of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, Connor, time to go international. We haven't gone international in a long time, and, and it's not great news. It never is, but still. Um, so this time we're going to Ethiopia, which for geographically challenged listeners is uh, in the, on the eastern edge of Africa in what's known as the Horn of Africa. Um, So on November 4th, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia launched attacks into the country's Tigray region. A little bit of background, Tigray um, is a rather wealthy part of the country, um, and its ruling party governed the country um, for many years after Ethiopia's autocrat was overthrown. Um, And so now this conflict is pitting kind of the national military against the regional military of Tigray's ruling party. And so the conflict is based on a lot of just tension between the ruling parties. Um, But one thing, Tigray recently held an election, even though the national government told them not to because of coronavirus, but they did it anyway. So that caused tensions to kind of rise. And then now the conflict is kind of um, moving outside of the country. Um, So... I think on Friday, Tigray fired rockets at Eritrea's airport, uh, which by claiming that Eritrea, which is a different country that borders Ethiopia, was assisting um, the national uh, government of, um, in its fight against Tigray. Uh, and already so, fraught relationships between Eritrea and the Ethiopian Ethiopians. Right. So no, just, it's it's yeah. all a mess. It's all yeah. a mess. And so um, this is a quote from uh, Pramila Patton, who's the United Nations Acting Special Advisor for the Prevention of Genocide. She said the risk of atrocity crimes in Ethiopia remains high. And then this is this kind of along with um, the New York Times reporting that by Sunday, at least 20,000 Ethiopian civilians had fled into Sudan, a refugee stream that the United Nations fears could quickly become a flood. Uh, Sudan says it's preparing for up to 200,000 refugees. Um, And then this is kind of graphic, but there have been accusations of war crimes against both sides, including a massacre reported by Amnesty International in which dozens of villagers were said to have been chopped to death with machetes, possibly by pro-Tigray militiamen. Um, This is very bad, Connor. And like you said, back when we were talking about the transition, um, this is why Joe Biden needs to be receiving briefings is because if there's going to be... a regional conflict or, or a civil war in Ethiopia, um, the Biden administration is going to have to respond to it. The Trump administration isn't doing anything, by the way. Mike Pompeo hasn't mentioned it. Um, there's just a vacuum of leadership from the United States. Uh, and this this is really why it matters who's president of the United States, because 
something i mean you can't have things like this happening uh you have to you have to act to try to mitigate um what could become a really bad conflict what has already it's already a really bad conflict one one death is too many in a conflict like this um do you have any any thoughts connor um it's horrific um obviously and just and it's even more just devastating in the backdrop of a pandemic. Right. And it's, I don't know really what I can say to, to, to sort of offset that or say how the U.S. should respond. Um, but something, I mean, yeah. some sort of no, yeah, I mean, refugees, there's, there's not a lot. There's no answer we can provide, but, yeah. but I just thought it was important important enough to bring to people's attention no because yeah. this ha this will have ramifications maybe yeah. not like soon but like in a couple of years these refugees could destabilize just mm -hmm. sort of the politics in neighboring regions which like not to extrapolate but this sort of like civil war like destabilization we saw in syria pushed these refugees into europe and you saw the rise of far-right militia mm -hmm and or not militia but far right politicians arguing against shutting these mo so like it's bad and it's bad now yeah. and it'll be bad for a while and it's it's impossible to say how bad it could get mm -hmm. um and what possible impacts this will have elsewhere in the globe but i'm guessing a lot right because this doesn't sound like a little like skirmish this sounds, this sounds no worse. it's it's gonna be a war uh and then just last thing ethiopia is considered to be or used to be considered kind of the bastion of stability in the region um because there's there's some countries there that that have struggled with political instability um but that that seems to no longer be the case and is now kind of the epicenter of conflict there um okay connor now let's move to a different part of the world we're going to the northern pacific and russia um what's going on uh, between us and uh, the country that Sarah Palin can hopefully still see from her house? Well, it's not great. Russia has escalated its provocative encounters in the North Pacific this year, harassing boats in U.S. fishing waters and sending bombers towards Alaska shores. This year, the Russian military has driven a new nuclear-powered icebreaker straight into the North Pole, dropped paratroopers into the high Arctic archipelago, archipelago to perform... <laughs> A mock battle and has repeatedly flown bombers to the edge of U.S. airspace. Um, like it's scary. Yeah, that sounds bad. It's, it's all frightening, as everything is internationally, and I guess domestically as well. But just to sort of read this um, this firsthand account, there's fishing vessels scattered over a hundred miles around Alaska's coast, and the captain of the trawler, Steve Elliott, stood dumbfounded as three Russian warships came barreling through, barking orders of their own, um, coming in from a mixture of Russian and accented English and warplanes buzzing overhead. There was a submarine nearby, he said, and the, the voice was saying missiles were being fired, leave the area. And this is a fisherman. And so he contacted the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard said they don't know. They said it was frightening to say the least. The Coast Guard's response was just do what they say. So, uh, no, that is frightening because I mean, how, yeah, yeah. I think he's a fisherman getting the delicious king crab. He yeah. doesn't know how to respond to Russian warships barreling down on him. Yeah, and all of this is taking place within the the United States, um, like 
economic exclusivity zone, which is supposed to stretch like 200 miles from our shores. And mm-hmm. it's for like fishing and oil drilling and stuff, but it can't prevent ships from moving through what's still considered international waters. But I don't know that that applies to Russian warships. I, I, that, that feels sketchy for them to be as so close. Inter- as international law fraughtly is. Yeah. Yeah. No, apply to not, Russians. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's scary. And then also I, I read in the article as well um, that Russia is kind of repopulating old military bases around the Arctic Circle and just showing an increased interest because as climate change continues to wreak havoc on our environment, um, the ice up there is melting, which is making it more possible to pass through and to drill for oil and more resources and offer like like research tours and like entertainment tours. And it's just going to be a big area of attention, um, much in the way the South China Sea has kind of developed into an area of tension, I think. I think the Northern Pacific um, is going to grow into that kind of thing. And I think the United States is going to have to start paying attention to um, what kind of resources we invest in Alaska and in like determent measures against this kind of Russian aggression. Um, and maybe when we live in Joe Biden's America in a few months, um, we won't have someone that just wants to pal around with uh, Vladimir Putin. I don't know. Just a thought. One would hope. One would hope. <laughs> One would hope. Um, so do you have some, some news this week? Connor, I do. unbelievable. It's too dumb to be true. It really is. And this news, it's a little bit sad. It's just, it's sad that people are stupid. But I, I won't apologize for that. Um, so a passenger aboard the first cruise ship to set sail in the Caribbean since the start of the pandemic has tested positive for coronavirus, according to a reporter traveling on the ship. This is the least surprising news ever, and I can't believe people would actually get on a cruise ship right now. The news came four days into the ship's seven-day voyage after it left Barbados on Saturday with 53 passengers on board. It had traveled to St. Vincent, uh, Canuan Island, uh, Tobago Cays, and Union Island in the Grenadines, and was scheduled to Keys. No, it's Cays. It says Cays. I C A Y S. Hmm? No, it's pronounced Keys. Oh well, thank. Okay, thank you, Connor. Everyone got a little language lesson today. Um, did it scheduled to end on November fourteenth, but returned to Barbados early because of the COVID, of course. Um, And then at the beginning of the trip, passengers were not required to wear face masks. The captain explained that the ship believed that its extensive testing prior to passengers boarding, quote, would block COVID at the door, so to speak. Captain, that that has not been the case. Um, Connor, this is too dumb to be true. That being said, I do hope everyone on board manages to get out of this alive and safe, but also shame on them for putting so many other people at risk because there are there are people working on those boats that do not get paid enough to do the jobs that they do and on the islands and on the islands the 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 native populations of these islands that these passengers are visiting are very much at risk don't have the medical infrastructure that these passengers are going to have access to once they return to the united states it's just it's very selfish and it's wrong and it shouldn't have ever happened um, shame on everyone involved in facilitating a trip like this in the middle of a pandemic. So just so dumb. That is, I, I guess, uniquely dumb for this week because how, how cruise ships are gross anyways. And in the middle of the pandemic, like, what did you think was going to happen? This is where it spread from the beginning. 
Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> do you, do you have any dumb news this week, Connor? I have two pieces kind of related to what we talked about earlier about the, the million mega March. <laughs> um, there's video of, and the reactions are priceless of, of Fox news anchors covering the, the March and in the coverage, you can hear the pro, the anarchist shouting <laughs> like Fox news sucks. And at that point you have to think back and just say like, have we reached just like the singularity? Are these, is this how it ends? Like the Fox news radicalized these people and now they don't want them and <laughs> they think they're fake news. And I wonder if I was like, if I was Chris Wallace, I was like, why am I still here? Like mm-hmm. what, what, what journalistic integrity do I provide anymore? And yeah. the answer is slim to none to Chris. Yeah. Um, In case he's listening. Yeah. <laughs> um any thoughts on that <laughs> um yeah it's stupid it just is also stupid and fox news has has now created a monster um that they cannot control and it's their fault and yeah, yeah that's it that we all have to suffer for and we, we all suffer we, from it yeah yeah and then sort of in relation to that you had i think who will be a constant character on this show Re- uh, representative elect marjorie taylor green um posting her her crossfit workout video from her hotel room for her new representative orientation, saying that tyrannical Democrat control of DC has not allowed any gyms to open. So she was forced, forced to do her CrossFit workout in her bedroom. Also forced to take a video of it. Forced to take a video, (laughs) forced to type out that and then send it to the masses. And it's not true because gyms are open in DC and the gym in her tow room was open. So it's just- Oh, she's just stupid, I'm afraid. It just- yeah. One day we'll do a ranking of, we can do like a top 10 smartest and mm. top 10 dumbest members of Congress. That would be fun. Hard, hard to find the top 10 smartest, I'm afraid. Huh. Yeah. Huh. A, a zinger, a zinger for, for Congress. Uh, <laughs> Congressional approval ratings. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, dumb news all around, I'm afraid. Um, okay. So my recommendation of the week is... Former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, he has a new book. It's titled Trust. My sister Savannah got it for me for my birthday. Shout out to Savannah. Um, It's very good. I'm like halfway through it. And he's basically mapping out why Americans stop trusting their government and why specifically the Reagan administration um, was so integral in in breaking that that tacit trust. And then I think the part I haven't gotten to is going to talk about how the Democratic Party um, now that we're in the, the second decade of the 21st century, can start to rebuild that trust and why it's so important, um, not only to trust your government, to t- but also to trust your neighbors. Um, so it's been, it's been super refreshing to read. Um, I, think, I think he has a voice that's, that's really important for the future of the party, um, if it is a bit moderate um, for my taste, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, so that's that's my recommendation. I know everybody, I, nobody's going to go read it, but that's what I'm reading. So no, I think it's important, and I was I was watching a documentary that I'll talk about next week, I guess. <laughs> but the statistics was that it was like sixty upwards of no, it's like six high sixties, low seventies percent of the American people trusted the federal government um, pre nineteen sixties, and then yeah. that jump number has dropped to like low teens maybe even single digits in some some instances and like yeah it's bad because the government can't do the sweeping agenda of like the new deal of the great society 
mm-hmm. those those big the, the Civil Rights Act, those big sweeping legislation um, legislative pushes of progress, if the people don't trust them to implement it or that they're doing it in the best interest. So I think that's a crucial. I think trust is a crucial part in trying as as the Democratic Party looks forward to pushing towards a, a climate proposal that that is sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, that's the show this week. Good, good end, end note. Um, well, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. I, we hope you have a good week. Um, join us next week. We'll just keep on, keep on going. Who knows what will happen between now and then? Who knows? <laughs> okay. Bye, everyone.